Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as the person who egged the White House on Halloween, but in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today, I'm passing the microphone to Recode senior finance editor, Teddy Schleifer. Before this week's midterm elections, he sat down with RevOps CEO Steve Spinner for a fascinating deep dive into the art of political fundraising. Let's take a listen. Thanks, Kara. I'm here with Steve Spinner, the founder and CEO of RevUp Software. He's the campaign chair for Congressman Ro Khanna, and he previously worked as the California finance chair for the Obama-Biden 2012 campaign. Steve, welcome to Recode Decode. Nice to see you, Teddy. So we're here to talk about Steve's background in kind of political fundraising. Obviously, a lot of listeners here might be kind of more familiar with startup fundraising. I used to cover, in my old life, uh, campaign finance and donors and known Steve. Um, but for folks who don't know who you are, I, I want to start with how did you get to Silicon Valley? You're, you're not from here originally. Uh, like so many people from California, they come from elsewhere originally. Sure. Uh, I am definitely like that. Uh, I was born and bred in Long Island, New York, to a doctor's family. and uh, Where in New York? Uh, Long Island, or okay. if I'm supposed to correctly pronounce it, Long Island. Uh, but Long it's Island. A, a okay. while since I've had that accent. And uh, I broke my dad's heart in college when I took economics and fell in love with that and told him I wasn't pre-med. And uh, ever since then, I uh, worked uh, on the East Coast and uh, worked a lot internationally in my 20s. Uh, so worked in Europe and then in Asia and then worked in Atlanta for the Olympics and, and then went to business school up in Boston and uh, then worked at NBC in New York at uh, 30 Rockefeller Plaza. Did that in the late 90s uh, when it was owned by General Electric for a number of years. And uh, What were you doing at NBC? Uh, business development, corporate development. So I was there when MSNBC was was formed and uh, ha- was involved in all the internet uh, activities that they did. Had a fantastic time there and did that for a couple of years in New York City. And then uh, an opportunity came up that if the deal happened, I knew it was they were going to ask me to leave the bosom of 30 Rockefeller Plaza, uh, a wonderful, wonderful building to work in, overlooking the uh, the, the Christmas tree. Sure. Uh, even though I'm a proud Jew, and I love it. You can still go ice skating now. So that's the. Uh you know, there's a, there's some. Yeah, I'm there. not I'm not very good on skates. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I loved the office, and then uh, the opportunity came up, and that had me come out to California, and, and I've n- never uh, you know looked back. So, so I still, came out here in '98, still, still with NBC then. Yeah, NBC initially uh, was there for a number another couple of years. Had a wonderful uh, ride there, and uh, you know had been doing business development. Turned me into a general manager. Uh, turned me into an executive, and uh, uh, really formative years professionally for me in my late 20s, early 30s. Uh, and I've been here ever since. So I've been here for 20 years and I've done a number of startups out here, have done things on the investment side. Uh, but yes, did definitely get involved in politics for the first time in uh, 2005, right after the uh, the Kerry loss, uh, where I first started getting involved in fundraising. So so growing up, you were not, you would, you, would you say you were a political junkie kind of growing up or is this something you just... Not really. No, the exact opposite. I am, I am the problem with the twenty-somethings. So I, I am the epitome of that. I was very, very focused on my career, uh, learning you know skills that I thought I would need for the rest of my life professionally, and I was not at all 
at all engaged. Even though I went to Wesleyan University for undergrad, yeah. and I'm a proud Wesleyan graduate, I was not politically engaged in my 20s and to my early 30s, and I've regretted it ever since, having not been in, involved earlier in my life. But I made up for it more than you yeah, know, you've made more up than it. made up for it in in the years since. There you go. So, so in 2004, John Kerry loses. You said that was kind of after that. That was kind of the moment where he started getting involved. What was kind of the first moment? What, what was the first time you kind of got involved in campaign finance? Yeah, so the first moment was a perfect example of a Silicon Valley leadership slash potential naivete. Uh, and I was the poster child for that, where a little old me, after the loss, said, you know what, maybe if I had been involved, maybe I could have had a small difference in, in the outcome. Uh, and many of us felt the same way. And so, very simple, I just called up a couple of uh, friends of mine who had been very uh, engaged in politics and had done it at a senior level were at the time known as very, very uh, strong fundraisers. And I just said, hey, look, I can't work in politics. I don't want to work. I like being a, a tech person, uh, but I want to get involved. I want to help try to see if I can make a difference, albeit you know a small one. Uh, and the aggregate, it adds up to a lot, if a lot of people do. And so they said, that's great. Come to an event. You know, Come contribute. That's great. I went to it in February of 2005. Who was, who was the guy who invited you? Uh, well, the first one was a guy named Donnie Fowler, who was running for a DNC chair. Okay. Uh, and and uh, the second one a few weeks later was for Senator Ted Kennedy. And uh, after those two checks, uh, the third one that I get asked for, and I'm like, whoa, you haven't met my wife. Uh, these checks are, are coming too fast and they're too big. I can't afford to do all this writing. Right. So if you can't write all these things, what else can you do? And that's when they introduced me to raising. The art of fundraising, so, which is different because, I mean, you're not, you know, a, a billionaire. You're a regular guy. Exactly. But it, the art of fundraising is there's there's kind of givers and there's fundraisers, and some people straddle it. So it's 2005, and you're sort of introduced to this by a couple people yep. in Silicon Valley. And that's it. I, I, I tried to treat it like business and say, okay, if I'm going to do this, what are the right ways to do it? What are the best practices that you can share? And I was very quickly disappointed when they said there are no best practices. It's fundraising. You know, you get an invitation, you get an email, you get a link, and you send it out, or you talk to people. And after many times, many failed attempts to try to get, you know, the best practices of what are the do's, the don'ts, um, I just kind of, everyone threw up their arms and just started doing it myself. And I'm sure for the first, you know, six, nine months, I made every possible mistake you can, every mm -hmm. amateur thing you could do. This is for 2006? In 2006, okay. just trying to help. I was helping Mark Gorenberg with Win Back the House. Another, uh, another venture, cap venture capitalist in town. But he was a major political fundraiser. Yeah, he's kind of slowed down. He's not as In active. the last decade, he yeah. has, ever since uh, Obama won. Yeah. But at the time, he had been Kerry's California chair. What I did for Obama in 2012, he did for Kerry in 2004. Yep. And so I just started helping him. And uh, I just started realizing that there's a very high correlation to raising money for a candidate as there is raising money for a company. You have to be really passionate about what it is that you're trying to get people excited about and inspired so much that they're interested in, you know, in giving in whatever appropriate amount it is for them. Um, and if you could just use certain skills that you would do in a business world, which is try to put the right ask in front of the right person at the right time and be respectful, and the key word there is be respectful, then um, then people are, are more likely to be interested in participating. Right. And uh, it's the opposite of this spray and pray of sending out an, an email to 5,000 people or, you know, 500,000 people and getting 0.0001% to click sure. on it and then give low, medium, high dollars. Mine was the opposite. Mine was a curative 
uh, manner of just trying to be, you know, if I knew someone liked climate change, to be able to put a climate change event in front of them. If I knew someone liked to go to a small, intimate event of six, 12, you know, people, to put that in front of them. If I knew that someone liked to go to big events uh, of a thousand people, you know, to do that. If people were willing to travel, to be able to do that as well. You know, the, right. the big thing was, you know, I'm preempting this here, uh, talking about Obama, but, you know, the big event was the Obama Oprah event in Montecito in Santa Barbara in, in 2007. And, you know, that was one where, you know, we're involved in in the Obama campaign, and uh, that's one that had just such interest nationally at the time. But, you know, I was able to be, after Oprah herself, the, the largest uh, fundraiser for it just because there were so many people that would— Oprah and Steve Spinner. Yeah, no, no. no there, there is a <laughs> cool sense. picture. There's a, there's a cool picture about that, but that's about the yeah. full extent of that. But let's just, let's just drill down a little bit more on kind of like how fundraising is done and what, what made what you were doing different. I mean— Fundraising is not that different from kind of basic human relationships where you're you're thinking about people you know and you try and kind of bond with people that you, you know, you're not, right, you're not just going around and saying like, hello, these are the Forbes 400, let's ask each of them for $2,700. It's, it's, it's it basically, you're kind of using, I'm assuming short first, a Silicon Valley, the people you know in town and kind of describe like the art, art of the ask. How's it done? Yeah, I mean, again, you know, the Pre, way— Pre-RevUp. Yeah, so, well, before RevUp and, and even before me, historically for fundraising at, at very high levels, let's just talk about the presidential level. Sure. Um, let's talk about Obama, you know, in 2007, uh, since I just preempted it with my last comment about Oprah. Before 2007, what had happened in 2004, what happened in 2000, and even in the 90s, a lot of times the, the best, quote-unquote, fundraisers at the time were uber-wealthy individuals— who had for many, many years been extremely, exceedingly generous with their own funds, giving to their causes, more importantly, giving to others' causes as well, so that when they got passionate about a candidate that they wanted to uh, see be president and they wanted to open their home and be a fundraiser, that that's when they would start cashing in their chits and say, hey, remember when I you right. know, helped you with your fundraising effort over there? Can I have you help me over here with mine? And there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. That's the way any type of fundraising goes, whether it be philanthropic or political. Yep. That's the way it worked because those were big dollars being asked and given by big people. And you do it at law of big numbers, and those were the biggest fundraisers at the time. And a lot of them, you know, got the perks of it, being the ambassadors and so sure, forth. Sure. And, like, and like the, I mean, some of the big fundraisers are brand marquee names, you know, the George Soros's of the world, the Oprah's of the world. These are like – a lot of people are celebrities kind of asking other celebrities for money. Correct. Correct. And, uh, um, and you know, that obviously could not and it could not be me. I mean, I was <laughs> super, super uh, excited about Senator Obama at the time. I was one of the first 50 people to get involved in the campaign, you know, months before it was officially announced in early February of 2007. And I just wanted help. Couldn't yep. do it full time, didn't want to do it full time, wanted to still have a job, still have a career, but be able to help where I could, which was if, it, if I can't write a big check, and even at the time they couldn't take them, it was $2,300 max you could you could individually write, but I could help by being a fundraiser. Um, and by being a fundraiser, it meant not calling all these chits because I didn't have those. It was, as I had mentioned, just know, research and get to know my friends. And at the time, I had about 2,000 people that I knew, you know, broadly defined new through LinkedIn and Facebook. You know, again, it's so many years ago. This is the early stages okay. of social media. And uh, I would just be very, very careful about just understanding. And I'd have copious notes, copious pads of paper about who liked what. 
you know, um, as I was mentioning earlier, who liked to go to big events or small events or yeah. who could write big checks or write only small checks, who could like to travel for events, who liked to go to a, a climate change event or a women's only event at the time. And I was just always tried to be very, very careful to put the right ask in front of the right person at the right time. And yeah. if you do that, you do that well, then rather than this 0.0001 yield that online does is you get 40% yield. 50, 60, 70, you know, percent and yield. And obviously, you, you had, I mean, it's not, it, this is a very much underdog story, but it's not as if you had knew zero people of kind of means in, in America. I mean, oh, of course. Yeah, right. No, I mean, I knew some, but I mean, I didn't know them necessarily in this vein so much. Uh, and it, it's just when you write, uh, when you take an email and you just customize the top line of it and you just recognize that, you know, Teddy, great seeing you the other day. I know you like to go to, I know you're particularly interested in uh, climate change events. Uh, here's a really good one for you. All of a sudden, you're going to read that email, and you're going to recognize that that's a, a unique email that was sent to yep. you, and there is a higher likelihood, a higher yield potential from that. So let's talk about. I mean, you you were very very successful. I mean, in, you know, and I think you know in 2012, I know we're jumping around a little bit. But in 2012, you were top five. So I started, and so in 2007, 2008, I was top ten. Yeah. Um, and give I was, a sense of like who were some of the other people in, in your kind of stratosphere here. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it, it wouldn't be you know a lot of names that people uh, that follow here would would necessarily recognize and so forth. But you know there were there were a lot of traditional uh, fundraisers in there, and I was one of the few first time yep. uh, people in the top thirty, and it was something I was ex- exceedingly proud of. Uh, but what the campaign was really excited was was the way that we did it. It was the first time that. People had used "quote unquote" data in a way that uh, it was now would be defined as data analytics. Yep. Back then, it certainly wasn't that cat- classification. And you know, they liked it. We got some great press around it, and it continued uh, the momentum. In 2012, I took that to a whole new level. In 2012, I was you know reported as being top three got it. In, in the country. And how much did that? How much did that? How much did you, how much you raise in retrospect? A lot. <laughs> a lot. Okay. <laughs> the good thing about this, like you, you, you can see, kind of campaign disclosures, but campaign fundraising is. In some ways, like venture fundraising, it's very competitive. There's a lot. There's you know, there is some ego involved in kind of who's raised what, and you know. So Steve is kind of focused more on you know on on raising what is now twenty seven hundred dollar chunks. But just for folks who are kind of not not aware, I mean, there's a whole world of which we can get into a bit called so called soft money, which is super PACs and millions of dollars and. That's not the world you are That's in. That's not the world I live in. Um, I, I like the hard money, the official, the FEC-reported uh, money where people are proud uh, to to make the contribution, and there are limits. There yep. are limits. I like a world of limits. And uh, I would deal with everything from the max of, you know, not just the 2700s, but to the committees of the DNCs, the DSCCs, DCCCs, the victory funds, and so forth, which would be, you know, up to $75,000 yep. in total. But not this stuff that you read about, the hundreds of thousands, certainly millions or even tens of millions of dollars. That's a world that I have not played in for, you know, professional, political, and personal reasons. Yeah. Do you ever kind of like just like step back and like reflect on kind of how crazy the last, like, you know, I'm sure like, you know, you were talking before about how you never really been... You, know, you, didn't grow, you didn't grow up kind of seeing yourself as some political animal, but like you kind of made it into the top tier of finance folks basically just through hard work and kind of an innovative idea that I'm going to be more strategic about how it's done. Yeah, but also, and I appreciate that, and there is obviously a, a great amount of truth to that, but it's also to do it in a way that is putting the donor first, you know, being respectful. I mean, and, and I've said that a couple of times. I say that a gazillion times. Like respect in fundraising, uh, I can't 
say that enough, how important that is, not just for me, but for anyone who wants to do it, whether it be for politics or whether it be for nonprofits or, or academic fundraising, anything you do. If you can be respectful of the other person, you're more likely to have a positive outcome, and they'll feel really good about it as well. And then the last thing is that you had mentioned the competitiveness of it. Yeah. Absolutely. Historically, it had been terribly competitive, and in some cases, it still persists. Um, what I've always enjoyed is uh, working collaboratively, working in teams, sharing credit, uh, that the whole is greater than the individual parts. And so it's not just the individual fundraising I did, but, you know, I wrote the business plan for Tech for Obama, wrote the business plan for Obama Victory Trustees, wrote the business plan for South Asians for Obama, because, you yeah. know, obviously the, the white Jew and me, you know, you, that you, that's obvious that I would write sure, that business plan. Uh, but that those efforts together raise many, many, many multiples of what I as an individual could, but you do it and so that everyone participates, everyone gets credit for it, you, you know, it's the, it's the big tent kind of thing. And that's where the real value of what I was able to do, you know, came in because, you know, my time, there's only a certain amount of time I can as a volunteer fundraiser. There's only so many people I know, but if you yeah. can build initiatives that take hold, that grow, you know, roots uh, and that you know, not just one or five or 10 or 20 people, but 100 or 300 people can participate in and they can make it their own, then you can have this huge, huge, huge multiplier effect and raise that much more money. All right, Steve, I have some more questions for you. We're going to take a quick break. And now a word from our sponsors, and we'll be back to talk more specifically about RevUp, where Steve is the CEO. Back in a sec. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, it's Tom Warren, senior editor at The Verge here. Microsoft is in an era-defining moment. It's betting on AI as the future of work, its Xbox business is going through transformational changes, and the Mac versus PC war is about to be back on. So I'm launching a newsletter called Notepad. It'll be your inside guide to all those changes and beyond. From details on the next Xbox to that one time every Microsoft employee named Michael appeared on a mysterious email list. Whatever is happening at Microsoft, you'll be able to read about it first in Notepad every Thursday. Go subscribe now at theverge.com forward slash notepad. We're back here with Steve Spinner, the CEO of RevUp. So let's kind of finish the story here. So after 2012, you've kind of pioneered this new way. You're still fundraising voluntarily. I'm still doing it manually. <laughs> still doing it manually. This is, and remember, you didn't grow up dreaming of inventing political fundraising software. Absolutely not. How did this idea for RevUp come about? So uh, one of my you know closest friends is Ro Khanna, and he had been running for Congress and, you know, obviously I wanted to help him. I was uh, helping him on the fundraising side. And a lot of opportunity came up where, you know, people had been reaching out to me about what I'd been doing, you know, for Obama and, and would that be available? Would I help them individually for this race or that race, et cetera? And it's just one of those things where there's only one of me and, and as flattering as there is, I don't like to say no, but I just don't have enough time to say yes to everyone. What's your, what's your day job at this point? 
at that time, I I, I was af- I I was helping. Uh, well, I w- I helped with Obama with the reelect, and I was playing what to do uh, Play, next. Kind of yeah. So I was helping yeah. Roe from a campaign perspective, but I was getting ready to either join you know a, a tech company out here or start my next thing. Got it. And so in that period of time of figuring out what I wanted to do next, um, I realized what we had done, what we had accomplished for Obama World had been, you know, really unique and really successful, and it was something unique that that I had done, and uh, that there could be an opportunity to help many, many campaigns. Uh, and uh, so that's what I wanted to do. Um, and so we started, you know, doing that. S- spoke to the lawyers, made sure uh, that we could do the way we wanted to do it because it had never been done before. Uh, spoke to both sides of the aisle because the only way you could do what I wanted to do is if it was not a partisan play. Yep. And even though I'm a Democrat and I'm a well-known Democrat, uh, from the get-go, since incorporation, uh, we had to treat it like a tech company, uh, which means just like Google and Twitter and Facebook and Salesforce, you know, w- works with anyone out there that wants to buy the software or, or leverage the technology, we would have to be the same thing, which, you know, politically is is a challenge for me, but professionally and personally, you have to, you know, you have totally. to do, yeah, yeah, right. I have a fiduciary responsibility to do what's best for, for the company and for and best for investors. And that the the product could thrive if it just had more people, you know, using it and, and testing it and, and so forth. And so, Roe was our, for, he was our prototype client, then we moved to 15 clients for the next year, and then we moved to 50 clients after that. Um, and these are clients are campaigns and or committees or organizations yep. um, that are trying to raise money that are in the political this, sector. This is, this is 2013? Uh, no, 2014. 2014, okay. The idea came to me in 2013, but we started building the software in February of 2014. Got it. And uh, so, as I said, Roe was our prototype in, in that year. And then Roe fit- is now, he's, not, he's been on the podcast before. He's now the congressman for Silicon Valley. He is. He um, is. He's, he loves coming down here. Good. Um, so, just, let's, let's just drill down a little bit more on kind of what this is. So, I mean... In the old days, I mean, there was kind of, you know, there were professional political fundraisers who probably had something like they would call software. What What is RevUp and how, yeah. does, how does it work? And I know it would be easier, and you've shown me kind of on your phone and on computer screens, but like verbally, let's give it a shot. Oh, I can communicate it verbally. So, so for anyone out there listening, imagine you're someone that you're inspired by a candidate or you're inspired to help out a nonprofit or someone you know reaches out to you from uh, a campaign or from your university that you went to or a nonprofit that you're uh, supporting and ropes you into, brings you in to, to be a fundraiser. The initial use case for the software was a as a fundraiser tool for a, a, a volunteer, for a bundler, as they call them. And if you put yourself in that light, as everyone's imagining that, um, you all have jobs. You all do something else for your life. Um, if you're going to do this, this is not something that you have comfort in. It's outside of your day job. And so uh, you've committed. You've said, yes, I'll help. And you're sitting in front of your, your computer, and you have no idea who you should re- ask to help. And we all know many people. Everyone knows hundreds of people. Some of us even know thousands of people. Well, what do you do? You have two choices. You can either send out one email about the opportunity that you're fundraising for to everyone. That's not fundraising, that's spamming your network and hoping that some people respond. But that's actually what the vast, vast, vast majority of people do. BCC, hi, I'm trying to raise a million dollars for candidates. Can you give 2,700 bucks? Or $27, you know, or $5. And that's just, it's spamming your network. And whatever comes in, you've raised. So in that case, you're a fundraiser. And a lot of times, most of it, you won't get. It's kind of like a low dollar approach to high dollar Giving. Right. But anyone that's doing it, it's an any dollar approach. Yeah, any it's dollar the, approach. It's the only way that they know how because their time is valuable and they have no information yep. to, to know any better, to do any better. They're doing the best that they can with limited information. And that's the whole point. 
The other way of doing it is that you say, you know what, an individual ask or an individual email or an email to a small group of people that's customized is likely to have a higher yield. But who should I ask? I still know the same thousands of people. And so you sit there and you start thinking through your, your Rolodex or thinking through your you know, mental contact list here. And maybe even you might actually even look through your LinkedIn list and so forth. And you're one by one by one going through this. And as you're doing it, you're like, this is the most unprofessional, inefficient way possible. And you get frustrated. And you push your computer away and you procrastinate. And that simple act of procrastination causes that fundraising effort to fail by 50% right there. And every day that you continue to procrastinate, add another 5% to the failure rate. Until finally, eventually, like, oh, my God, there's only six days to the event, and I haven't done much yet. I got to buckle down and do it. And you start just reaching out to top-of-mind people that come to you, people that you think are individually wealthy, people that you think individually might be interested in this, people that owe you chits, just completely top-of-mind. And as you're doing it, you're like, 95% of the people I should be reaching out to, I'm not reaching out to. And I'm reaching out to a whole bunch of people that I probably shouldn't be reaching out to. And I'm never going to do this again. And usually it fails. So with that in mind, we said, that's the problem. No one in business would conduct their work that way, just winging it, sending out one email to every vendor out there and hoping that someone replies, or just without any research, uh, reaching out to people indiscriminately. We would do research. We would try to handle it in in a professional, efficient manner. We don't do that in fundraising. So what what the software does is we said it's it's so it's data analytics on the fundraising side. It is not the system of record. It's not the CRM. So we don't compete with any of the companies out there that take the money through their system. So you're not actually raising the money. It's just a way to organize the contacts for raising. We're not the links that the money's going into. And so there are a, a bunch of different companies out there of all different sizes. Those are all of our partners. We are very, very careful not to, you know, to do anything like that. What we do is we help the fundraiser or now we also help disproportionately even the finance staff, the development staff, the advancement office. Um, The tool now has transitioned even more so uh, into a staff-driven set of tools. What are you guys doing in the future? So Uh, so now as a bundler, if that same analogy is now with one click, you can upload your Gmail, your Outlook, your LinkedIn, your contacts, your iPhone contacts, any uh, Excel spreadsheet, CSV list you have. And if you know thousands of people, it'll merge, purge, dedupe them, clean them all up, single Rolodex. And uh, and then it goes out to thousands of political and charitable databases. And it will bring all that data, put it against your contacts, put it against the profile of the organization that you're raising for. Hmm. And based on that profile of that organization and all those 10,000 databases will then force rank every single person you know, highest, lowest likelihood to be interested in potentially giving. So at that point, it's like, so, you know, you have... Uh Let's, let's say you're raising for Rokana's campaign, and you have someone in Palo Alto who is a doctor who's given money to Democratic Congress, congressional candidates sometimes, not always. Um, maybe they're South Asian. Exactly. And, then, and then, you know, it matches up with, okay, Rokana, he's a new candidate. He's South Asian. And he, it matches up and it says, okay, maybe this person is a, you know, a, you should they should be in the 75th percentile for the people you call. Um, and then someone else who, you know, is only given to Republicans for their entire life, but the last six years they've given every single Democrats, suddenly that's an easy ask. It's basically a way of ordering the thousands of people you know into how you should prioritize your time. Right, right. So the the part that I'm particularly um, attracted to is not going back to the same well over and over and over again. And that's a major, major problem in political giving uh, is that the same people are getting hit up many times every single day. If you can believe this, 
only 2% of the U.S. population gives money to politics. It's higher than I thought, actually. And <laughs> most of that money is by 0.1 of 1%. Sure. And so everyone calls the same folks, and everyone really, really calls that 0.1%. And so, yes, the software will certainly have that 2% in there and certainly will have the 0.1% in there. And it'll say, have, you know, have they given before, but they haven't given currently? Have they given less now than they normally give? So go back and ask for more. Have they given to other things like you, but they don't know you? So maybe if they only knew you, they'd want to give to you. Absolutely, we go, and there's many different types of filters and, and parts of the algorithm that'll boost people up and boost people down of people that have historically given. Yep. Absolutely. My passion is to go after the other 98%, introduce it to people that have never been given before. And so the Ro Khanna example, as, in, uh, as you sure. just mentioned, um, sure, there are some wonderful donors in the tech and the South Asian community that have given to politics but those before. Are sort of, those are sort of obvious people. And and those have been some of his donors. Those would be like the top of mind person. Maybe that person doesn't need you don't need the software for that exactly. person. Exactly. Well, no, you always need the software because you, 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 yeah. you always you always need to know in what order and how fast and what's the likelihood and what's the appropriate ask and all that good stuff. Again, you're trying to be respectful here. But the power of it was to go and identify people who had never written a check uh-huh. is on no one's list. But maybe because they're a South Asian male in tech living in Silicon Valley. Yep. Maybe, you know, rather than a 90 or an 80 or 70 score, rather than getting a zero score, maybe you get a 43 score. And um, you focus your time and energy on people in the 60s, in the 50s, in the 40s, people that no one talks to, no one reaches out. Many, most people don't even know they exist. But because there's, there are hooks, respectful hooks of potential interest, of attractiveness, of a connection that that campaign or that organization or that university might have with that person— yep. Isn't it a gr- better thing to grow the pie and go after people that nobody goes after and there's a much higher likelihood of them saying yes because there's no competition for the same dollar? What did what the pushback be? And I'm sure you've heard this before that like part of any human relationship is just like the soft touch and the the ability to, you know, maybe, maybe there's some – there's, oh, you know, they don't kind of check any of the demographic or uh, historical – attributes that would indicate this person's likely to give, but maybe you're just really good friends with them and you feel like, sure. and, or, or maybe, you know, you saw them last week at the coffee shop and there's just that human connection that like the software can't predict. How do you deal with that? I mean, look, you should always preference people you know and touch points that are more current and more, you know, accurate. So if you know in, in things about people that are outside of software, that trumps anything that any software. So even if it says this person's not a giver and you're like, you just have a maybe just something in your belly that makes you think this person will give, you should still hit them up. Right. Uh, they're not a giver yet. That's the whole thing is they haven't given yet. Um, that's the part that I find is both the opportunity as well as the challenge, and I like the opportunity part. So let's talk a little bit about kind of what you're doing now. So you guys just raised $7.5 million. You announced it last week or a couple weeks ago? Yep, a week ago. By the time this is, uh, is airing, probably a couple weeks ago. This is, this. you know, your background is in politics. This came up as a political idea, but... You mentioned development offices, endowments, like just for the grand scheme of things, political fundraising is a very small amount of fun, the fundraising world overall. Correct. So this is a bid to kind of make, you know, the Princeton University Development Office or a hospital or a, you know, anybody that's raising money, you're kind of now pitching this as a software for anybody who has to kind of call a database and figure out who to call. Exactly. So if you think about uh, giving last year in fundraising in the United States, it went up to, it crossed $400 billion. 
that this country was generous to open up their wallets and give. Of that, only $7 billion in total over two years in this cycle goes to politics. People, so People act like, you know, I mean, that's, that's always the common criticism of campaign finance report for reformers who say there's so much money in politics, and I think it's Mitch McConnell or maybe John Boehner who has this you know, quote about more money being spent on toothpaste than on, right. on politics. Exactly. That, that is unfortunately true. The reason why that it, it feels the way it is is that so much money is used on broadcast television uh, because it's still exceedingly effective to getting out the message. So everyone sees it, and so they see more money, more ads, and you just get you know, oversaturated with ads. And the other reason why is that a very, very small percent of the population is just getting hit up so much, and they're very, very vocal about that, as they should be. Um, and so that's why why you're getting that that view. So the much larger market by so many orders of magnitude are nonprofits, you know, at large, and especially, as you mentioned, um, higher ed and uh, healthcare as very large components within that. And so that is what we're doing with the software. We've had a, a very successful couple of years coming out um, with, you know, first or a prototype or alpha or a beta coming out of stealth mode uh, a couple of years ago growing. We now serve over uh, nearly about 300 campaigns and committees and so forth, and we'll continue to grow that. Next year will be super exciting given that it'll be presidential cycle and, and so many races as well there. But we did do the financing to very specifically go into the larger markets yeah. and do what we do in data analytics working with the CRMs, with MS partners, but now go into these larger categories and do exactly what we've done in politics into these larger categories because they're um, and they're chomping at the bit for next generation type of tools. These are pretty stod- – not stodgy institutions, but like they, these are – they have formal development offices. These are – I mean, like, what is there any is there any part of you that like that worries about just the, some of the skills not translating or some of the software not translating? I mean, there, look, everyone does it in their own way. There's certainly best practices of how a lot of these uh, you know organizations do it, and these are very very professional people. Um, the larger the organization, the more people they have, and the more structured they they tend to be, and. As a result, the more professional they can be, they you know they can have more staff, they can have more tools, they can have more training, et cetera. But everyone, I mean, there are half a million nonprofits. Everyone's raising. Uh, it just depends on how much you know how much resources you have at your at your disposal. And so we just want to be a tool to complement what they're currently using. And you know, a lot of these guys are using whether it be Razor's Edge of Blackbot or they're working with Salesforce and probably a hundred other companies out there as a system of record to be able to help them on the data analytics side for both staff as well as volunteers to have the same level of effect in those verticals as I'm honored to say that we've had success um, this last few years. I mean, we've we've been just blessed with all the awards in the industry that we've won. We won Best Fundraising Technology, Most Innovative Product of the Year two years in a row, Best Startup, Best Analytics. We, we deployed our mobile app last year. We won the award for Best Mobile App. And so what... We're doing as a data analytics company has not been done before in these three verticals. And what I'm super, you know, proud of is where I've lived for the last two decades is to be a Silicon Valley company bringing Silicon Valley tech to these three verticals that have historically not had the opportunity to benefit from that, at least from a data analytics perspective. Got it. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be back after this with Steve Spinner, the CEO of RevUp, and we'll talk a little bit more about politics. We're back here with Steve Spinner, the CEO of RevUp. Um, so this is a software that you're back, you obviously are, you know, it's well known on the internet, you're a Democrat, but this is a software where you're definitely kind of using, there's some prominent Republican clients out there. How do you kind of balance, 
you know, I guess let me just describe how much you do politically personally these days. Yeah, um, I've had to cut back in many cases, which is very, very hard uh, for me on a personal level because that's my genesis in all this. But like, for instance, you know, we'll be very involved in in the presidential races next year. And uh, I won't, as an individual, be able to participate because how can I be personally helping one when I'm working with 5, 10, 15, 20, you know, people that may or may not be running? Sure. So uh, on a personal level, I've had to do some cutting back. Um, I mean, I still help this candidate over here, this candidate over there. And, Obviously, and you're so still involved forth. with Rokana. Still helping Roe. There's this guy, Sri Kulkarni, in, in Houston, Texas, who uh, is a very, very exciting uh, candidate that is basically the Roe equivalent on the foreign policy side. He's 14 years State Department in, in a bunch of different, very, very uh, challenging environments, placements he's been over the years. He speaks six languages fluently. Very exciting candidate there uh, that's running in a Houston district. And yep. so I've been, you know, you know, helping them uh, as well. Uh, so I still help a number of candidates here or there, but where I really, really dug in and was National Finance Committee and chairman of this or co-chairman of that and so forth, I, I probably won't be able to do because— Give up, give up those fancy titles. Which how, the... how can you do that when you're helping them from a professional purposes? And, and that's the whole point, which is uh, that's how I can work with Republicans as well as Democrats. That's how I can work with multiple Democrats in the same race. Uh, you know, here they we can are. All be, they can all hire. You know, they can all use the software. Right. I mean, uh, here we are in the state of California, and you know, um, on the Dem side, you know, there there'll be races where there were four, five, six candidates in the same race for a congressional district that we just experienced for the last year and a half here, and in June, you know, most of those, all but one or two, will lose, uh, but we were able to help with multiples of them because. You know, we're uh, we're just a tech company. So if you pick exclusives, then you're you know trick, trying to pick horses. You're not really a tech company whatsoever. Then you're part of the advocacy apparatus. Yeah, and right? that's just you. You can't build a. You're a, trying to be like a Google, Facebook software platform that folks can use or not use, and that's and, it, and that's independent though from like, hi, I'm Steve Spinner. I was in the Obama finance. Exactly. Committee. Exactly. And so that's the only way that people trust you, that you're going to treat them the same as the other people because you treat everyone the same. And we try our best from a customer service or partner success perspective to treat everyone exactly the same. And, you know, I mean, people that know that we have multiple clients in the same sector, it's never been an issue in four hmm. years. Uh, people that know that we sometimes have clients on the opposite side of the aisle, it's never been an issue in four years where I take that as a one of the things I'm honestly most proud of is because I'm a proud Dem and I'm a card-carrying, scar-ridden Dem, um, that I can meet with Republicans. I mean, where did I meet you, Teddy, originally? I, I the met you Mitt at— Romney E2 conference. Exactly. I was covering when I was at CNN. So what is the—I mean, just, talk, I just want to talk a little bit kind of about how fundraising has changed a little bit over, over time. You know, you started in 2005. This is pre-Citizens United, one of the key Supreme Court decisions that created super PACs. And, you know, I think there's been a lot of discussion in, in the media and people in my industry who used to cover political money about has Trump changed the game at all with fundraising? I'm just curious. I mean, if someone's raising, you know, we're coming up on 2020 cycle, the midterms are in a couple weeks. Is fundraising different than it was a decade ago? Uh, it's much larger. I mean, it's much, sure. much larger, and it's much more successful online than it's been. You know, every four years, you get this new uh, bar that it crosses, and you don't think it can get any more successful than that. And, of course, four years later, it's twice as much as it was before. So, um, yeah, so it continues to evolve. There's still a, a long, long ways to go. 
there is a certain amount of marrying of, you know, spray and pray, blind fundraising, just increase the the size of the list and you don't care about right. the churn. This is online, low yeah. dollar, you know, yeah. you're on the Beto work email list. And, that, and that's a whole other industry. That's not your industry. It's not me at all, yeah. and I can't stand it. But yeah. because it's the opposite of of the respect part that I talk about, like yeah. how many hundreds of email fundraising emails do we all get every day? And sure. we delete ninety nine point of them. Yeah. Um, that that I can't stand. But they all also have well, some screaming headline, like you know, oh, the country is in crisis. Well, <laughs> that's actually one of the things that's helped you know, worsen the narrative um, yeah. in politics. And it's on both sides, pox on everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, look, the, the big changes that have happened, and, you know, there are many people that would that would uh, say this, I'm not the only one, uh, is you know, Democrats historically always had a huge, huge advantage with small dollar online donating. And that started with Howard Dean in 2004, and it's only picked up ever since. For the first time ever in the last couple of years, the Republicans with Donald Trump was able to do a certain amount of that and do it quite effectively in 2015, especially 2016. And that's persisted through this cycle, through the fundraising that they've done on the RNC side. But outside of that, one anomaly there on the Republican side, there's still a huge difference, huge competitive advantage of small dollar on the Democrat side than, than on the Republican side. The other thing is that Democrats have Act Blue, which really is a— It's like a portal, which you want to describe it? Yeah, no, I mean, it is—it's just it's a way to be able to easily make multiple donations over time, stores all your information, makes recommendations, and so forth. And it's it's just been very, very successful for Democrats. And, you know, they have a company called NGP Van, which is one of our partners that's also, you know, very, very good at being the system of record. And so the technology has always been— historically an advantage on the Dem side, uh, especially as, as it deals with small dollars. Uh, on the big dollars and especially on the soft money dollars, uh, Republicans have, or, or, you know, have historically always had uh, a lead on that, especially, obviously, ever since Citizens United. Yeah. So let's just, just want to explain it for folks. I mean, so basically the way that most – lots of campaign dollars were raised today um, and all, the only way they were really raised pre-Citizens United was – you know, there's a the, the, the federal limit for how much a candidate can, how much a donor can give to a campaign or a committee. Um, and after Citizens United, they created the creation of super PACs, pools of cash where people can cut checks of unlimited size. And that's kind of what a lot of the headline grabbing stories are. Peter Thiel giving a million dollars to the Club for Growth or Sheldon Adelson giving $25 million to, you know, a kind of a party sponsored uh, Senate super PAC. That's kind of what people think of when they're like, when they read a campaign finance story. But then there's also just kind of the, I mean, $2,700 is not nothing, obviously, but it's not five, it's not 25 from Sheldon Adelson. Right. So you have the super hack where you can write unlimited and it's disclosed. Correct. There's also write unlimited and it's still not disclosed, and that's what they call dark money. Thankfully, that's decreased, but that's still, that's just still something I'm very, very uncomfortable with. And, you know, many, many people are very, very uncomfortable with Democrats because of the lack of disclosure. Right. I mean, there are some Democrats that were more, more and more comfortable. This is kind of epitomized by Charles and David Koch, who created a large network of organizations that are 501c4s. So they're tax ex- um, they get some sort of ta- kind of tax uh, exemptions in exchange for being theoretically non-advocacy organizations. Right. But I, but the thing is, I, I'm always very protective and defensive of donors when they give hard money up to the max, and and when I say that protective, meaning that they're allowed to do it, and if they want to do it once, that's great. If they want to do it, you know, twenty five hundred times, they should be allowed to do that, and they shouldn't be hit for donating. 
I, I always have a problem when donors get hit uh, because they support uh, when they get this, criticized. This is all public information. Public information. They're required to, but you know they're doing what they're allowed to do because they're inspired to hmm. do that. There's something about that candidate that they like a lot, and they can't necessarily give time. They can't necessarily travel for them, but they can write, you know, two hundred fifty dollars. They can write maybe twenty seven hundred dollars. They shouldn't become part of an attack ad. And some people do that. To be fair, now, this, this is on both sides, right? I mean, there are there are. Well, no, it's usually on the Republican side to Democrats uh, historically, but but where it's really gotten bad is on the on the the larger checks, the soft money, where, you know, now those guys that are writing the large checks, they're getting hit. And, you know, in many cases, they deserve to get hit for that. Uh -huh. So I like to protect up to the max, the 2700 and then beyond that, it's discretion Well, I mean, the I, mean I think the, the, the yeah, you know, this, this did change with, you know, Harry Reid. Kind of, Charles and David Koch, for instance, not used to be household names. Um, they're obviously extremely wealthy, but this became a big deal when, with Harry Reid, who kind of went out there and attacked the Kochs during the 2012 campaign. Correct. By name, I think on the Senate floor, you know, I mean, but that's on the soft money on the yeah. big on the big seven, eight, nine sure. figures. I'm always very, very protective of you know when someone they, expressing their democratic right give twenty seven hundred bucks or two hundred fifty. I saw, yeah. I actually saw a dem on dem hit piece last week. It's in, right here in in the Bay Area, two Democrats, an assembly race, and I saw someone uh, doing an online. Uh, posting there where they just were hitting people for writing 250 or 500 or $1,000 hmm. because they were supporting the other candidate. That really kind of upsets me. Yeah, I think the, the, it's, 200, it's $200, right? At beyond, beyond that, that's when you start getting named in campaign finance reports. Above 200 yes. Right. You have okay. to disclose. For folks out there, you, yeah, if you give more than $200, you will be findable by people like me and I guess people like Steve and other folks as well. Um, Trump, I mean, do you think, I mean, you know, this is mostly on the Republican side. There's an argument to be made. I wrote a lot of stories about kind of Trump's fundraising woes um, during 2016. There was a lot of Republican donors, like the folks at the Romney Summit we were just talking about, who felt, you know, Trump is running against the system, drain the swamp. Um, and I think it's kind of led to at least some budding conventional wisdom that political fundraising doesn't matter anymore. Trump can just you know, hog the airwaves, the whole point of raising money presumably is to buy media attention. To what extent do you think, like, he has actually kind of changed how political fundraising could be done, at least? I mean, you know, this is a much longer conversation than the last few minutes uh, of this. I mean, he's he's definitely changed some aspects of it, absolutely. But I do not believe that um, in the next cycle for the reelect, if he is the candidate on the Republican side, that the media will do in that race, even as a sitting president, what they did in the last one, because it was, you know, it was comedy. In terms um, of campaign coverage. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just, it was Trump 24 hours a day on all networks, not mm -hmm. just the on the Foxes, but, you know, he was also on MSNBC all sure. the time. And as a sitting president, they're even now starting to cut back. There's been a lot of news about that over the last month, month and a half. That one of the reasons why Rallies the president aren't taking live anymore. Well, one of the reasons why the president's going out so much is because you know a lot of his comments are not getting covered as much, and and the rallies, even those, are not getting covered as much. And so he's trying to say things that are you know that are uh, newsworthy, or uh, he's trying to make them newsworthy to force him to get coverage, like what he did last night in Montana because people are trying to cut back on that because they realize that it is an unfair advantage. I mean, he he won disproportionately. Well, there were many reasons why uh, Trump won last cycle, but one of them is that he just had so much earned media mm -hmm. 
that you know, he didn't have to pay a penny for and, and 10 times more than his closest competitor and 100 times more than some of his other competitors. So you don't feel, you don't, you feel like that was a moment in time that Trump was, because he was, maybe there was a media fascination with him and, you know, he obviously also self-funded somewhat, you know, he self-funded his Republican primary race almost entirely. Um, he, did, he gave some money, not as much as he promised to give to, during the general to his campaign, but I mean, at least in the primary, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he was outspent and you know, that was the whole point that, you know, he loved to make fun of Jeb Bush, right? Saying right, that, like, that's how he was able to make up for the shortfalls. Right. You know, he did fund himself to the level that he needed to get in the game yep. and have, you know, a team that he needed. But he was able to more than make up for it with his comments that caused him to get all this extra media. And, you know, he starts out as having higher name ID than almost anyone else on the stage. Yep. And so when you start out just by your name ID from TV, from The Apprentice, being able to have 15, 17, 18 percent uh, support and name ID of 35, 45, maybe even up to 60 percent name ID. Um, how is anyone else supposed to be able yeah. to compete? So you, with so you, that? So you see that as as, an, as not necessarily that consequential for kind of the way that your business of political fundraising is done. It, no, not for me. I mean, you still have to fund your campaign. So the, the part that actually gets me excited um, from a rev up perspective is yep. historically money is the number one and the only one that matters in can you do you make a decision to run for office or not? Can I raise the money? And if you believe you can raise the money, then you raise your hand and you run for office. I actually hate that. I believe that money should not be the reason why you decide to run for office. It should just be part of the of the execution plan. You should run for office because you think you can do a better job, mm-hmm. that you can help people, and you can move us in a positive direction. And what RevUp can do in politics, what RevUp can especially do for nonprofits and, and universities, is lower the bar for you to more easily be able to raise the amount of money you need if you're a candidate to run a competitive race. Right. So you, you agree in general with kind of the idea that Money is necessary but not sufficient for competitiveness. Yes. yes. So the idea that you don't like, need to have the same amount. You don't. You absolutely don't need to have a the minimum same threshold amount. for. You don't a, need to have. You know, Beto Work does not need to have thirty-eight million dollars in a month to to be you know a competitive candidate, and he might lose. Absolutely. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Or you know, you can have races where you're raising twenty-eight million dollars and you lose like crazy to someone who you've raised three, four times more money. You can have other races where you raise, you know, $1 million and it's one-fourth the amount of money as the other person and you win handily. Yep. So, but you have to raise a certain amount to get in the game. You have to raise to be able to have a team and to be able to get your message out. Um, and there are other things that matter, absolutely. That's why it's called a campaign. There are many facets of it. But money... Uh, gets you in the game. And I that's what RevUp is focused on in politics is to lower the bar to make it easier for you to raise the minimum that you need to, to be able to run a competitive race. Uh, and the same thing, fulfill the entire mission and, and, and charter for a nonprofit and a, and a university. Right. Doesn't mean you'll win, but at least you can kind of play the game. So. Exactly. Steve, fascinating conversation. Thanks for coming on the show. And thanks to all of you for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and please tell a friend about the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Teddy Schleifer. And now that you've done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, our producer, Eric Johnson. Kara Swish will be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. 
you earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply.